I'm Nels Anderson. And I'm Jesse Turner. And I'm Damon Stone. And welcome to Terminal 7. Here we are on episode 15. Episode 15. A very special episode 15, because today we have a guest with us. Who's we, that? Who's, 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 yes, who's who here? are you, sir? <laughs> I'm Damon Stone. Um, I am one of the designers for uh, Fantasy Flight Games Android Netrunner, as you are all aware of. Oh, ho! <laughs> well, that sounds quite relevant indeed. What a great guest. <laughs> it's like this was planned or something. Um, <laughs> so I, th- I think it would be kind of interesting because as far as, I mean, in general, like Jesse and I both work in, in digital games. And one thing that I've certainly found is that in digital games, kind of the path to being a designer tends to be pretty varied for a lot of folks. Um, I was just kind of curious, like what what was your background like did you work in game design before going to fantasy flight um actually i didn't uh for me it was very much a case of right place right time knowing the right people uh i actually prior to um working for fantasy flight games my last uh nine to five job was as a uh, counselor running um behavioral health programs for uh you know people with uh mental and uh, emotional problems. Wow. Wow, so you're quite the Renaissance man. Yeah, I uh, guess. <laughs> I, I, I do have a, a pretty diverse background. I've, I, I, I've done a lot of things. I actually have to admit, I did check out your LinkedIn, and I saw like choreography and dance on there as well. I yeah. Pretty off, pretty, uh, pretty interesting as well. Can you expand maybe a little bit on that? Um, I am an international dance instructor. Um, I, wow! This is incredible. <laughs> I've taught dance on four different continents. Um, I've got a trip for Korea planned later this year, um, which is one of the places I go to about every year to teach. So, so this is something you still do right now, yeah. in addition to designing games. Yes. Wow! Wow! But is, it, is there something, is there a lot of uh, your previous experience and your other profession that you can bring into to Netrunner, for example? Have, has that come up? The creative process is the creative process. It does not really change uh, if you are writing, if you are an actor, if you are you know, a singer, if you're a musician, if you're a dancer, if you're a game designer. You know, the creative process is the creative process. Uh, as far as my, my other jobs, well, uh, once upon a time, I worked in the uh, computer and web industry back in Silicon Valley. So I got a little bit of experience with computers and corporations. <laughs> and relevant. Relevant. Uh, I have, um, yeah, I mean, my, you know, my background and jobs in um, psychology certainly help a lot in um, you know, player psychographics, but as well as you know, profiling the kinds of elements that we want to really have present in the game. You know, so the idea of how side bids work and uh, what draws certain kinds of people to certain kinds of characters, certain kinds of mechanics, and then helping flush out a lot of the the background, a lot of the fluff of the Android universe. I use uh, a lot of my diverse background. Wow. Yeah. That is that is impressive indeed. <laughs> um, 
Well, so when you came to Fantasy Flight, you didn't start out on Netrunner because Android Netrunner wasn't actually a thing yet, correct? Correct. And you, uh, what was the first project you worked on at Fantasy Flight? A Game of Thrones. Uh, Game of LCG. Thrones. Yeah, that was what I was actually hired originally for. Um, I was I interviewed for that job. Um, I had applied specifically for that one. I had been a playtester for them for a number of years, and ah. the lead designer Nate French was getting ready to start full-time um, design and development for a new game, which it was uh, Lord of the Rings. And he wasn't going to be able to do that, you know, set up the core design, all the crunchy bits, uh, and manage uh, a Game of Thrones at the same time. So I was somebody that he liked and trusted, and he thought that I'd be a good fit for the job. So he suggested that I apply. And apparently my boss did also, because I got the job. <laughs> hey, there you go. Awesome. Uh, so I have never played the Game of Thrones LCG. Um, I'm guessing. For shame. I know. <laughs> I've, well, Netrunners, I mean, we kind of talked about this on the cast in the past, but Netrunner is the only one that's actually gotten its hooks into me sure. in, intensely. Um, I assume that Game of Thrones is not asymmetrical, right? It's it's more no. like, it's like magic or something where it's like everyone just has the one deck that they play. Yes. I mean, it, technically you have two decks in a Game of Thrones because you have a plot deck, but it's, it's a deck you are using both decks at the same time. The plot deck really only comes into play usually, unless you've got your draw deck designed very specifically, it usually only comes into play once per turn. I see, interesting. Um, so were, like, as you were working on Game of Thrones and developing it, were there some lessons that you found in developing that game that you ended up applying in Netrunner? Uh, I would say that there, there are certainly some aspects of it. Um, I have a, you know, as, I'm a relatively creative person, so the more that I can get myself uh, in place to be inspired, to gain inspiration, and I can work from a very creative standpoint versus looking at things from a very mechanical standpoint, um, I tend to do really good design work. And that was one of the things that I recognized um, pretty early on in A Game of Thrones, that you know, reading through the source material would give me all sorts of different ideas about uh, card ideas, and that would, you know, let me start working from a broad conceptual design stage, and then I could um, focus things in more, uh, more tightly in the, you know, card by card finishing up mechanics and figuring out what does the game need and where is a good home for it. But for the most part, um, I really try and keep my design from a, a very creative standpoint. Mm, that's interesting, because with Game of Thrones, obviously you're drawing upon material that already exists, right? Like yes. those, those books. But with Netrunner, that's not really the case. I mean, in that, like, the Android universe was a thing that was built in-house at Fantasy Flight. Correct. So do you find that, like that the fact that you can just kind of, it's like, oh, here's a cool idea that came from some cyberpunk book or whatever. We can just insert that into the world. Is that something you find liberating or is the fact that you kind of have just as much space to play around with as possible, is that is it a little bit blank pagey and a little bit trickier to figure out where the where the right bits are? Yeah, um, I don't know if, if everybody that is listening uh, understands that last part that you said, but it's incredibly important. 
uh, when you when you don't have any restrictions on you, it's really easy to stare into space, looking at all the possibilities and being unable to make anything gel. When you yep. have restrictions, yeah. it's all about <laughs> that. Ah, where? How far can I push this? Where are the edges? Okay, I really want to deal with you know the heart of this thing. What is the core? concepts of it and so having that framework having that structure actually makes creativity more interesting in some cases easier um, despite the fact that you would think uh, at least you know somebody who's not necessarily really familiar with how the creative process tends to go that without any restrictions you think I can do anything I want everything is open and that actually makes it really difficult um, and to answer your question now is uh, I actually find it and I find it fantastic uh, because I we have restrictions you know we know what this world is supposed to be like we know what this universe is supposed to be like at its core and so you know we have regular sessions where we just get together and we talk about you know well we know where the Andrew universe is right now today as far as like New Angeles goes in this thing but how did it get there? You know, what else has happened? So we've talked about Sansan, we've talked about Bazwash, we've talked about Shiloh. What happened to get Chicago and St. Louis to turn into one great big giant, you know, megapolis? And so these are, you know, regular conversations we have. Um, you know, a few days ago we were sitting back and talking about Reina Roja and discussing what exactly her unit was like. Um, what did they specialize in? What branch of the service was that? Was it a completely new branch of the service? Was it a sub-branch in much of the way that the Marines are, you know, ad, you know, adjacent to the Department of Navy? Technically, they work underneath the Department of Navy, but they're not really the Navy. Right. So, you know, these kinds of conversations um, are world-building, and that creates all sorts of you know, backstory that we, you know, write down and then fold into the uh, the cards that you see. Some of them are direct inspirations. Some of them are elements of the world that we've created that exist only to be hinted at through flavor text. So it's it's fun. I enjoy it quite a bit. Oh, this this sounds like a really like organic process. I I actually thought it would be a lot more like mechanical. Like, oh, we need mechanic X Y in the game right now. How are we going to crowbar it in there? But it sounds like it just comes really naturally through jamming on the idea. Is that is that is that is that the case? Um, I would say probably about seventy to eighty percent of it is like that. There's wow. definitely cases where okay, well, what we really need right now is you know a way to give Chinteki a little bit of money. So we're going to need you know something that does that. And so we, so Lucas and I would sit down and we'd talk about, well, what would that, you know, what would that look like? How does Genteki get money um, from game perspective, but also from the corporation perspective? And so, you know, the idea of Miranda Rhapsody being gifted, you know, a toy giraffe, and by toy I mean size, not toys and Unreal, right. that you know, <laughs> they have created. You know, in the same way, it really, it sort of came out of uh, talk about um, Sundance and how, you know, one of the reasons why a lot of people go to Sundance is to get the swag bags. 
You right, know, say right. if you've been to like Gen Con or whatever, you're you're familiar with how that works. Or right. you know, for you guys, for like you know E3 and what have you, it's like I'm going to go and I'm going to get a whole bunch of really awesome stuff that is really meant to you know endear me to this company, and at the same time. You know, I'm going to be walking around carrying this person's bag that's got their logo on it, or I'm going to be talking about how I just, you know, got this, you know, special vodka or this, you know, movie preview that I got to go see, and it becomes its own form of advertisement. So we got celebrity gift. <laughs> wow, I I think that yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I don't I don't know how much you talk to other like other people at other organizations that also build board and card games. But do you find that this, like, really... I mean, in general, this process certainly sounds more, like, world-building, creative-focused than maybe I was expecting a bit. Do you think that Fantasy Flight and you guys' process is kind of an outlier in that regard? Or is this something that's actually relatively common in the analog game world? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I don't even know if I would necessarily go so far as to say that Fantasy Flight games is necessarily really centered in on this process so much as... The particular group of people that um, that we're working with might ah, okay, focus sure. a little bit more like that. So, like the world of Netrunner is was originally created um, by uh, you know Kevin Wilson, uh, you know at, you may know him as Wizard, uh, and our uh, managing art director uh, Andrew Navarro and uh, I'm sorry Navarro and. Um, between the two of them and uh, Dan Clark, who's one of our content um, developers, one of the people who like just sort of like world builds for all of our, for a bunch of our different games and game lines, uh, you know, they sort of created the world. And now it's Dan Clark, myself, uh, Lucas, obviously, and um, our current, um, you know, uh, art manager, which is uh, Zoe Robinson. And so we get together to discuss uh, the art for certain cards. Lucas and I get together and we talk about, you know, mechanics and what we think, you know, specific corporations or specific runner uh, factions need to stay relevant or to give them more depth, give them some complexity, to give them alternate, uh, what I call alternate looks, which are essentially different different expansions um, or explorations of the color pie. So, I mean, I think part of it is certainly the fact that, you know, hey, we create Ameritrash games, which are really all about <laughs> that theme and marriage of that with the mechanics, versus Euros, where, you know, a brown block and a gray block and a green block and a blue block, and it, you know, it right. doesn't matter yeah, yeah. if they are people, if they are sheep, if they are wood, you know, the, me the mechanics are the mechanics. You play the game based on that, you don't have any, most people, I should say, don't have any real um, tie to the theme. Yeah, they're much more abstract. Right. Yeah. So I, I definitely think that dealing with the more, you know, genre type of games definitely puts us in a position where these kinds of conversations are probably going to happen more frequently. Right. I mean, but it's, how it's, many it's, people stop to think about Puerto Rico and the fact that these brown cubes that you're you know, transporting are slaves? Right. Uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it sounds like that it's not just that 
that there's like a synergy there too, right? That it's not just about, you know, having, oh, we need to have some cool art we could put on the box and like well-sculpted plastic miniatures or whatever, but it seems like it's actually also provides a lot of you know, fertile ground for actually coming up with new ideas and making the game feel more, you know, cohesive and robust versus like relatively abstract. Yes, I would definitely, I would definitely agree. Um, the mechanics inform the fluff, the fluff informs the mechanics and all of us together I mean, you know, Android Netrunner is one of the most popular games in the company. And I don't mean that, I mean, from a, like a product line. I mean, like, it's the one that during lunch, you know, you'll see a dozen or more people playing, you know, Android Netrunner during their lunchtime. And these yeah, are people who work on the game. These are, <laughs> right. you know, these are marketing guys. These are, you know, people in the warehouse. You know, these are, you know, some of our uh, programmers or what have you, or, you know, our RPG guys for, um, like, 40K. It's... Yeah, it's just an incredibly popular game, so everybody is very, you know, invested in it. Yeah, because that can't be too common, like everyone playing the same thing at the company that, that made it. Because it, especially coming from games, you you get pretty sick of what you work on, and everyone gets pretty sick of what you work on. And your lunchtime is the only break you take to play somebody else's uh, game. And here you guys are all rocking Netrunner over in uh, Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, to kind of take it back to to the to the no pun intended to the Genesis, uh, were oh, you Jesus. involved in the <laughs> when when the game came about? Like, were you involved with the initial like from the beginning core set type stuff, or did you come on a little bit later? Um, I would say that I was I was part of the development team. Um, the core set design itself uh, was almost entirely Lucas. Um, there were other people who. You know, he was bouncing ideas off of, um, you know, he had some conversations with a number of people, some people over at Wizards, he had uh, some conversations with, you know, Richard Garfield, but for the, but the, the actual core design, what, what changes were made, what updates happened, were, you know, a good 80 to 90% all him, and then the rest of it was bouncing ideas and development uh, process. So right. I would, you know, credit where credit's due, Lucas's translation of that game and its update um, was, you know, brilliant. Richard's original design was, you know, nothing short of inspired. It's just elegant. Yeah. Um, well, related to that, like, even during that, even though you weren't necessarily involved in the initial, like, design design, even during that initial development step up to now, do you guys still go back and look at that original set very often? Like, I noticed that there are, obviously there are some cards that are, like, literally identical just with a name change but most of the time it seems like there's some like ideas that sort of were floating around in that initial set that you all have translated and then made more refined and robust i'm just wondering how often do you actually go back to that well of the initial game in the in the current instantiation uh, well i mean the original netrunner was one of my favorite games oh so you played uh, so, it back in the oh day. yeah Oh yeah, wow, that's awesome. uh, uh, funny short story. Um, when I was hired, or when I was in my in-person interview, face to face with my boss, he was asking, "So, you know, tell me about some of your games, and you know, some of the games that you know you really like, and why." And you know, I named off, "Okay, well, you know, Magic because it started, you know, the whole idea of." customizable card games um you know of course i eventually got out of it just because it was just too 
it was too insane. You know, too much money <laughs> for me personally um, at a point in my life where I was putting myself through college. Um, you know, my money from the GI Bill had run out. I had a car. I had you know, an apartment. I had a girlfriend, and I was spending too much money on cards. Right. Uh, so, you know, I had it's like something's got to go, and it's not going to be my job. It's not going to be my car. It's not going to be school. And it's not going to be my girlfriend. So, love you, but I I, I can't afford you anymore. Um, right. Of course, that relationship didn't last more than maybe another three to four months. So maybe I gave up the wrong one. I'll never know. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. We don't talk anymore, so it's fine. Um. Uh, uh, joking, joking aside. So, uh, you know, I mentioned Arkham Horror, which you know he was very fantastic about, because, or very excited about it being on my list uh, because, right. of course, you know it's one that we produce. Right. Um, and then I said, you know, Netrunner, and he's like, oh, okay, well, why Netrunner? Like, you know, I get, you know, I had told him that Arkham Horror was my first uh, game that was a collaborative game. Everything I had ever played before that was. You know, all everyone for themselves, or you know, a back and forth between two players, and that was the first one where we were all trying to beat the game itself. Right. Um, right. You know, and Magic, of course, you know, being the granddaddy of all of them, you know, not liking that game and being in, you know, card game design or wanting to get into it is just, you know, a little odd. At least in my world, I think it's odd. Yes. Then um, <laughs> I said, well, I mean, it's just. It, everything about it was fantastic from uh, like from a design perspective. It was just you know it was elegant, it was simple, it was asymmetric. You know it solved a lot of the things that Magic had going for it, had going on in it that were thought to be problems by a fair amount of people, um, problems that nobody else was attempting to solve. That Richard just went, well, you know what? I'm going to make a game that's as far away from Magic as possible. Which is great. You know, if you can get everybody to like this thing over here, except for these people, you know, you create a game for them, and then you've got both into the pole, and everybody sort of falls in between somewhere. Right. So, yeah, great, great work on you know marketing on their part. But yeah, so he said, oh, it's it's funny that you say that because we just got the rights for that game. I'm like, <laughs> I know I'm here to. Uh, you know, interview to become the designer for a Game of Thrones, but if there is any way I can get involved with working on that game, even if it's just after hours playtesting, I would jump at that chance. He's like, I think something could probably be arranged. <laughs> so, How delightfully auspicious. <laughs> ain't it, though? Uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely look back, as does Lucas, um, at the original design, the original sets, um, you know, some notes that Richard had about, you know, how different things were intended to work together and offset each other and um, act as, you know, paradoxical and at the same time um, correspond to each other, you know, despite the fact that it's an asymmetric game. And, you know, we definitely use that as a bit of our inspiration. Nice. Uh, but, you know, we've had 16, 17 years of development uh, in the genre of customizable card games to begin with. So we're constantly looking at how to update things as well as just, you know, play things straight out. Yeah. Right. Well, I think it, at this point, is the card count for Android Netrunner larger than the original set? Uh, 
I mean, the original first release, yes. As far as the original game, no. We're, I think we are getting really close. Um, I think mm. by the end of this year, we'll have uh, we'll have more cards. But yeah. I would I would you know I I've got that kind of stuff written down in notes at work. So I I don't know off the top of my head exactly what the card count is between the two. Right. Nice. Right. Do you have actually any insight why it didn't uh, catch on at the time of release, like like the original Netrunner game? Um, you know, honestly, I I can't speak to that. I really don't know for a fact. I mean, I have suspicions. Um, I think part of it was uh, Wizards might have just been seeing that you know Magic was really doing overwhelming um, kind of business, and they made the decision that trying to do other games that were not immediately catching on to the same level was a distraction and the resources could be better spent other places. It could have been, um, you know, that despite the fact that the game was created uh, to solve a number of the quote-unquote problems that Magic had, uh, it still had a number of, you know, a number of flaws in its own. You know, again, there was still the idea of rarity as a means of controlling uh, you know the environment that people were going to play in. Uh, so you know there were no card um, right. maximum yeah. counts. So I could have fifteen or twenty of a particular card. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, and that tends to create kind of a degenerate, you know, environment. But again, you know, you have to remember both of these games were originally created at points where the idea that somebody would purposely go out of their way to buy so many of these cards to actually own play sets or, you know, I shouldn't even say play sets at that time, but enough cards of any particular one, no matter how rare it was, that they could have everything that they needed to build you know, the perfect killer deck was still a, a foreign idea. One, one, as we move from the original Netrunner over into, obviously, the current version that you've worked on, um, one of the big differences between the original game and the Android version is in the old game, there was no notion of, of factions or anything like that. Um, I imagine that that was like a design decision that was made early on, um, but it seems like there's a pretty like concrete set of guidelines that you all developed for the four corporations and the three runners is like... How, like, do you, do you have any idea how those came about? Is that something that you all still, like, cleave to very tightly now or have those ideas of kind of what the different factions mean evolved as the game has evolved? Well, the the corporations were really easy. They were, you know, pre-existent in the Android universe. It was just a case of let's take a look at what the biggest corporations are that operate in New Angeles. And, um, you know, by that route what, you know, New Angeles being the biggest, most important city on the planet, the corporations that are the major players there are just the major players, period. Um, not that there aren't other mega corporations, not that there aren't other, you know, giant, you know, megapolises, but, you know, these are the ones that were in existence for, uh, you know, for the Android universe in regards to New Angeles from the Android board game. So they made natural choices for, for factioning. So the fluff aspect of those is well and truly set. I mean, there's always you know, exploration and expansion, um, but 
everything sort of still falls into the core vision of what is, excuse me, the core vision of what is Genteki, um, what is Hasbiroid, what is MBN, what is Wayland. Uh, as far as the runners go, it was a little bit more, uh, a little bit more of a case of really stopping and thinking about which direction could this go. Uh, very early on, it was decided we didn't want uh, actual factions of runners in the universe. That just didn't fit with the way that we saw uh, Android, the way that we envisioned runners. Right. Uh, like, the, like there is no actual organization in the in the universe called the Anarchs that all these people belong no, to. No, no, <laughs> right now. They, they meet once a week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was decided that, uh, you know, eventually after discussion that motivation was going to be the key to factioning. So, you know, if you are out there for the credits, you know, it's really down to I run to get rich, then, you know, you're a criminal. You're all about the, you know, that long con or the short con or the I'm an industrial, you know, spy. You're, you're about getting in to get things to get paid. So you're stealing information or you're stealing money, but you're all, your motivation is greed essentially right um at least it's a primary motivator for you uh for you know your anarchs it is the ideas that you know well on some ends you have the idea that any you know that information wants to be free you know that's sort of like the general hacker um you know sort of like ethos moment that i shouldn't have to pay you for you know this digital copy of a thing this digital copy is not a real thing it's not a product i can't hold it in my hand it's all ones and zeros and your ones and zeros and my ones and zeros are exactly the same it's just yours are in a different you know sequence than mine so the ones and zeros and the space to hold the ones and zeros on my hard drive now is conformed to look just like the ones and zeros on your hard drive um, yeah, it's that idea that the laws that are out there are not, are either unfair or should not be applied to me. Um, along with that, you have the general sort of the uh, idea that laws are important, um, society is important, but what trumps that is, you know, the greater good. The idea that. I, you know, th those would be your rebels with a cause. So rather than I just want to see the whole world burn, the this corporation is doing bad things and I'm going to be the one that exposes them. Right. And then you have your, you know, your whimsical, uh, you know, people who just are in love with, you know, the alternate world. They're in love with the net. They like being somebody online that they cannot be in real life. Um, they are your digital artists. Uh, they are the creative types. They're the people who run just to see if they can. You know, they are the tinkerers, and that became Shaper. Now, obviously, motivations change and shift. 
Um, no one person is motivated by a single cause, by a single ideology. So, you know, you have people who, well, their primary motivation is revenge. Um, but the way that they're doing it is in a very creative sort of way. Uh, so where do they fall? And so you have somebody like the professor who was all about exploration and then became about, you know, you were doing bad things and somebody needs to stop you and expose you. You know, and you know, should he be a shaver? Should he be a criminal? Because he's, you know, definitely going and stealing um, including funds? Or is it somebody that makes more sense as an anarch because he's trying to bring down, you know, a corporation? You know, in the end, it was decided that, you know, Shaper is definitely the ideology he most closely presents. Right. His primary motivator. Yeah. Um, so then what was the process like taking that, those thematic underpinnings and mapping those onto the different, like, mechanical identities of both the corporate and runner factions? Because obviously their mechanical identities are all very distinct. Um, was that more process of, like, okay, we understand we're going to need these different mechanical elements in the game, so let's find a way to map them to these organizations we already have? Or was it more out of the thematic nature of those organizations, they evolved into these different mechanics and that kind of just folded back on itself? I'm just wondering about how that, how that like, initial... How, how you initially married those themes with the actual defined mechanical identities of the different organizations. Um, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I mean, in some cases, it was very much a case of um, knowing that we had specific elements, specific mechanics, uh, things that need to be represented or uh, dealt with in the game, both from a fluff perspective as well as from a you know purely hard mechanical level. Uh, you know, and a great example is me looking at the original set and going, what are these cards? you know, absolutely need to be here. They need to be redone as closely as possible. Where would they fall? Um, you know, who would do something like this? So the idea of, you know, tinker, you know, tinkering is like, oh, okay, well, we are going to turn a piece of ice into all three so that it's easier to grab. Anarchs really wouldn't care about trying to manipulate the ice uh, in that fashion. You know, they just blow it up. You know, criminals would be like, I, "Why would I, you know, fit around? I'm just going to bypass it." Like, well, it just makes sense that the idea of changing somebody else's creation to fit your own needs in that moment is very clearly a shaper kind of ideology. So some of them really, you know spoke very clearly about where something should get where it belongs. On, 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 like, while we're on runners, uh, I wanted to mention uh, Android Netrunner has the most uh, the most diversity I've seen in a lot of uh, games in general. And I mean that in uh, racially and sexually. Well, I, I know it's got to be aware of that. Like, it's got to be aware of itself. Did that come more from your guys' input or from the original source material? Oh, no, that definitely came. Well, I mean, 
you mean original source material as in the original Netrunner or from the uh, Android Sorry, I mean Android, uh, sorry, the Android universe from uh, Fantasy Flight. Uh, yeah, that definitely came from uh, the and Well, it's representative of the Android universe. Uh, but we made very specific decisions about how we were going to have that represented in the game. Uh, you know, yep. we're... You know, it's, it's quote-unquote a near-future game. Um, you know, it happens well after all of us will be dead and gone and probably our kids, but it's not like a thousand years in the future. But it's also not, right. you know, it's also not like 50 years in the future. And we're already at a point where, you know, the idea of, you know, quote-unquote mixed-race children is, you know, growing and having a single ethnic majority in the U.S. is, you know, decades away from being a, you know, a non-factor. So, you know, having a future in the game that represented what the future of our own world is going to look like just made the most sense. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that, yeah, generally speaking, games, um, like movies uh, are not so great at representing women and you know uh, racial minorities with any kind of uh, regularity, let alone you know functional relevance. So I I think that I'm proud of the fact that you know of Corset there is nobody in there who is Caucasian. You know, they are all of an ethnic minority slash mixed you know, race background. Oh. I didn't realize, I didn't actually realize that until right now, but yeah, that's, huh, that's awesome. Yeah, so I mean, you have, you know, you have noise, you know, G. Uh, Riley, he's Chinese and Irish, um, uh, you know, ethnically, and you have um, Mac, uh, Kate McCaffrey, she is uh, Scottish and African American, and then you have, you know, Gabriel Santiago, who is, you know, Hispanic, so he's got, you know, native uh, South American as well as, you know, European Spanish in his, right. you know, in his ancestry. So, you know, there are no just pure, quote-unquote, uh, you know, race or ethnic people in the runners. They're all mixed race, really. Very, very cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you guys are proud of that fact because I, I know it's appreciated across the board um, from all players and, and everything else. Yeah. It's very refreshing. Yep. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that it's something that people uh, notice and like, you know, hopefully somehow I, you know, help make, uh, make it so that games and other forms of entertainment see it as an okay thing to include you know, a bit more diversity in uh, who they choose to, you know, represent, who they choose to include in their uh, designs and movies and television shows. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. Well, uh, on on a on to maybe roll things over more into kind of like a design process type line of inquiry. Um, perhaps going from like the 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 most macro element. Like when you all are, I mean, obviously a big part of the game's continued lifespan is these the uh, the data pack cycles, right? So, what is the design process for an entire cycle set look like? Do you guys like 
start out with a specific theme you want to explore or are there like particular like mechanical things you're trying to investigate and create more kind of robust support in the card set for um how, how, how does usually like like if when you guys were say setting out like the spin cycle like what was where did that kind of originate um well the the cycles all sort of shift and change just depending on where you know where we're at at any given point um you know spin cycle was definitely about the bad publicity uh, mechanic so right. you know it was some some natural things that were going to come of that desire to show it but it was uh it was definitely a more top-down mechanic sort of or i should say bottom-up ways of generating bad publicity, we need ways of getting rid of bad publicity, we need, you know, various forms of uh, new ways of exploring what having bad publicity means on both sides. Uh, but then we have things like the, um, you know, the lunar cycle, which is obviously very, uh, you know, thematic things. We are looking at a specific location and Exploring what does you know what does the beanstalk you know mean to the people of New Andes? What does the fact that we now have you know a colony on you know a well-established colony on the moon that a significant portion of people's you know energy supply is on Earth is you know directly tied to the people that live on you know that live on the moon. How does that affect the culture of the people there? And you know that idea, that exploration, led to a bunch of different ideas of different cards. I mean, you've probably seen some of them and some of the spoilers and stuff coming out. Right. Yeah, um, I'm more of a spoiler guy. Nels kind of shies away from any spoilers. Good for online. you. <laughs> <laughs> I like to be surprised. So do I. So do and I. I yeah, I, I always just send them what they are anyways, and it pisses them off. It doesn't piss me off. It's just like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Um, yeah, a lot, and in, in general as well, like, is that process of... I'm sure to some extent it just has to be, but I'm just wondering how much is, like, reacting to the current state of the game a factor in those design decisions? Like, is it, okay, well, clearly this corporation has a deficit in this regard so we need to find a way to shore that up or like just how much in the four is reacting to the current game state in addition to building out the mechanical and thematic ideas you have with any particular set? Um, I would say a lot less than most people probably think. Um, I mean we, this, <laughs> we designed far enough in advance that um, you know that the things people say, oh, well, we finally got an answer for this thing that, you know, has been bugging us or, you know, it was a problem. You know, I'm glad that they're listening. It's like, we, we, we didn't listen. We, we knew that that was a thing when we designed the cards. And so this was going to always be something that was coming out. Or it was something that became obvious during playtesting. And therefore, we knew that the following cycle or the following box was going to need something to uh, to balance it out. Now, in some cases, we give answers before there's a problem. Right. In general, you guys are like 9 to 12 months ahead, design-wise, of the cards that are currently released. Is that is that about right? Uh, I don't honestly know. I 
can't, I mean, but I actually had to stop and think about which cycle I was going to name as being thematic because I couldn't remember what the latest one was. Uh, so <laughs> I'm not really sure where, where we're okay. at in design versus what is actually out, you know, right now. Right. The only time I know when a new card set is out is when, you know, one arrives at my desk. Right. But in general, it's not like, okay, well, we're three packs into the spin cycle. Let's figure out what's going in the sixth pack. You guys are way, way oh, ahead no. of that. Yeah, we're, we're definitely always a minimum of six months because we design uh, the entire cycle at once. Right. So we, it gets right, cool. tested all together. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. Yes. Of course, that makes sense as well. Yeah. I bet that that's probably a thing that people might not realize. But yeah, those, those. So actually, I'm kind of curious about that. Like, in general, when you all design a set, like, how does the process of filtering which cards go into which individual data packs, like, what is that process like? Uh, we put all the cards up on a dart board and we start throwing darts. <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs> okay. But it might as well be. Um, there, is, there is no specifics. Uh, sometimes okay. it makes just a lot of sense. Like, if, you ha if you've been paying attention to the pack names for uh, the lunar cycle, there's a journey that's progressing. Right. So it starts in New Angeles, and you have your upstock, and you know you just progress through. And each name of the pack sort of indicates that certain cards should probably go in it that are going to feature specific elements that uh, correspond to that geographic location or to that conceptual space. Right. But it, it's a lot more thematic. It isn't like there's a specific mechanical like growth throughout the packs. Uh, well, I mean, there is. There, there absolutely is. There are points where we will take all the stuff I'm, that, I, that I'm saying for all of these things are more about this applies in part. So, right, you know, sure. you come up with these names and they're geographically located or they're conceptual, you know, ideas that follow natural progression. So, a portion of the cards are going to follow that progression. And then some of the cards are going to be cycles of very specific mechanics. And we make determinations whether or not everybody's going to get that same mechanic in one pack, if we're going to spread them out. If we're going to spread them out, is it going to be Corp and Runner in the same pack? Is it going to be Corp and Runner, then Corp and Runner, then Corp and Runner, and then Corp, Corp, or you know, whatever at the end? Uh, or you know, it's how is that going to take shape? And so there we also very specifically look like, okay, well, this card combos with this card, so we're going to put it together. This card combos with this card, so we're not going to put it together. You know, it really is a case-by-case -case basis on this sort of thing. Got it. Yeah. And again, there's the, hey, we gave you a card, and then two months later, you guys are realizing that this is totally awesome, and it's starting to, you know, dominate, and then out comes the fact that it's got, you know, a couple of possible answers to it. You know, that, that is frequently purposeful. And again, you know, like, why does this card exist? You know, I don't get it. This is trash. It's going to go in my binder. I'm never going to use it. Three or four months later, you're like, oh my god, that's the perfect answer. Comment, oh, sorry. Nobody paying attention to you, puppy. Sorry. Right. Uh, you know, that card is the perfect, <laughs> you know, answer to this thing that has come out. And we've had it for months now, so much so that some of us have actually forgotten that this card existed. Cool. Um, well, obviously, the other big content element of the game are the deluxe box expansions that, at least thus far, have always been exclusively about one runner faction and one corporation. Um, 
what was that always the idea from the beginning or was that like in terms of like we would do cycles that are a diverse pool of cards and then a big box that's really focused was that always the intent with that kind of content um you know honestly i can't be i i can answer that um not because it's sure. uh something that i cannot like i've been told don't answer this question but it's the that kind of decision like what products are going to what types of products are going to get released in any given game line are you know above my pay grade you know i can always Got say to my boss or to the CEO, like, I think that this game would really benefit from this kind of release of products, and they will certainly listen to it, but that's not my decision to make. I'm not party uh, to those conversations. So, sure, sure, I, mean, sure. I can say I believe that, um, you know, since the core set was released, certainly by the time the first data cycle started going out, that, you know, having cycles and then faction boxes and cycles and faction boxes was definitely uh, decided. But I, I can't tell you when that decision had gotten made. Sure, sure. Um, well, I, uh, more design-wise then, like, how do you, how's, have you been around for, I assume, yeah, you've been working on the game long enough now that you've been around for the development of, say, like, Honor and Profit, oh, right? yeah. which was the Genteki and Criminal-focused deluxe box. Like, what is the design process there? Because obviously, both the runner factions and corporations have particular thematic and mechanical elements, but obviously just giving the, those factions more stuff that they're already good at is not good for the health of the game in terms of power creep and everything. So what is the approach like in terms of designing those boxes where it's not just giving more of what that runner or corporate group already does? Well, I mean, I mean, you talk about power creep, and I guess a lot of it just depends on what your definition of power creep is. I personally look at power creep as the, this card invalidates this other version of it. It is clearly more efficient. Um, and yeah, we do everything that we can to try and avoid that. And if we do yeah. create a card willingly and purposefully that invalidates another card, it comes from that realization that other card was you know too weak or too situational or too this or too that and we want that mechanic represented in the game and so we're going to purposely make a card that's just better um to date we have not done that i'm not sure we've done that with any right. of our games actually you know and like game friends you call the goo have been out for like 12 years or something now so i think we've got a pretty good that's good. I think I, I think that is a yeah that is a hard thing to accomplish, but I think it's a very important goal. And if if I I mean I don't know how, certainly some games have gotten into that state like to the detriment of the game. And I always like it's just kind of boggling to me like how they get into that state. But it's 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 always good to hear that like oh we very deliberately do not want to do that. Um, but given that, then how, what is what is the approach to those deluxe boxes where it's not just about providing more better versions of the exact same cards? Um, well, a lot of it uh, comes with the what has been designed for that faction from the beginning. Like, when we decided that we were going to make this faction, um, you know, we decided that it was going to be good at these things and okay at these things and terrible at these things and just not ever going to be able to do this, you know, this one thing. Well, you know, in the core set, in over cycles, there's only so much exploration we can do and still be able to give people, you know, cards that make for a coherent and functional card pool to make your, you know, shaper 
you know, big sport factory boxes is one of those places that it made the most sense to introduce things that were planned but had not yet um, been published. Ah, okay, that makes sense. So it's kind of like a design opportunity because like if there was some say unexplored avenue of a particular faction or corporation, it might be challenging to like dribble out just a couple cards to support that here and there throughout an entire cycle. But in a faction box, you can drop like a big chunk of that mechanical meat at once, which allows people to kind of start playing around with that alternative version of some particular particular side more completely. Exactly, exactly. And by okay giving it to them all at once, they can see, go, oh, okay, well, apparently, you know, this faction also does this thing. And now that I am aware of it, I can look back and say, oh, yeah, here's a card that falls into that, and here's a card that really supports, you know, this kind of deck type or this kind of build or this strategy. And, you know, it gives the players a different perspective on what, you know, Yeah, yeah, all, all the big boxes I found, it feel very experimental to me. It, it, it's not like this is how you have to play it now. It just gave all of a sudden gave me as a player a lot more tools to just jump in and sp spread around everywhere in all my different play. And uh, that's that's why I really uh, have been appreciating them whenever they come out. Good, well, I'm glad, I'm glad we're getting it done. We're setting out for a goal <laughs> and actually apparently achieving it, so that's always good to hear. Thank you. <laughs> um... Uh, okay, so again, it's more of a, like a process type question. Uh, like obviously, at least a big part of digital game design is uh, certainly on all the games I've ever worked on. There's lots and l there's a humongous uh, both emphasis and value in doing a lot of playtesting and iteration. Um, I'm kind of wondering in like the more analog game space, is that also the same? Like, do you guys do a lot of playtesting very frequently? Um, is it just kind of like constantly you're always sort of rolling or they're like very focused chunks where it's like, all right, we're just going to take two weeks, playtest the hell out of this cycle or whatever, or maybe this particular corporation, then bring that back, iterate on a bit, and then do it again? Um, all of the above. You know, it just really sort of okay. depends <laughs> on where we're at and what we're trying to achieve. Uh, you know, and that's one of the one of the things that I think is a, a relatively big difference uh, dealing with card games, particularly in the LCG environment, rather than um, a CCG environment or you know with digital games. Where with the digital game, you know, you come out with your thing and you come out with it, and that's it. And you live or die by how it's received, because it's going to be a while before the next the next update, the, you know, Mass Effect 2, Mass Effect 3 is going to come out. So you, you know, that's what you've got available to you, you know. And for CCGs, it's not that dissimilar. You, you have your base set, and you might have one or two additional sets that are specifically meant to, you know, build off of that same idea. And, you know, they have some form of rotation that comes in and it wipes out a great big chunk of it. And so you get another great big giant influx. And so you have that ability to constantly recreate, you know, the entire environment almost anew. Whereas a living card game is really a living card game. It's constantly growing and constantly shifting um, and constantly changing. And so it's, it's constant development. We would go and say with the beginning of the cycle, these are things that we want to achieve, and 
and so then we will play test one specific aspect of it. Oh, okay, well, you know, I think that what, you know, there, there's a general belief that noise has gotten completely neutered by Jackson Howard. So what we really need to do is we need to take a look at noise, and we need to take a look at virus, and we need to take a look at mill, and we need to see if there is anything that we can do to help people realize that, you know, no, noise was not really negatively impacted in a standard, I'm going to go and I'm going to win this game fashion. It just made it so that it wasn't ridiculously easy by, you know, hey, I'm going to make one single run all game long into your archives and I'm going to win after that. Right. <laughs> so there's, there, there are, you know, the Let's take a look at this. Let's just sit down and play noise and play noise versus, you know, Jinchetti. And let's see, you know, what's going on. Okay, so what can we do that will get people excited and see the possibilities that are that are still present, um, but that don't involve power creep, that aren't going to involve creating an overpowered card that six months, a year down the line, we're looking at and going, yeah, I really wish we hadn't done that. Um, so yeah, we do specifically test um, matchups, uh, faction versus uh, identity versus um, deck style or play styles. But uh, mostly, it's just a case of you know what do we think is needed right now to produce the best results. And sometimes that's let's take a look at this mechanic, and we're going to specifically build decks to test this mechanic. Sometimes it's Trying to build the best, um, you know, the best deck off of a specific identity. Um, in other cases, it's specifically trying to break a card. Uh, we have a, a fair amount of ability to, you know, play with things, and not like six weeks, six month uh, release sets, and make decisions with a lot more freedom as far as how we want to test a given thing. We don't have to follow a very specific. You know, wrote uh, follow uh, you know a plan set stuff. Cool. Um, well, now I think we want to roll into some stuff that's like a little bit more lightweight that may kind of expose some things that just people don't know about the game or a couple of your favorites or whatever. Um, obviously, you've talked a lot about like integrating theme and mechanics. That is absolutely one of my favorite things about Netrunner as well. Um, but is there a particular specific card or maybe set of cards that you think? Just, just from your perspective, like that integrates mechanic and theme in a way that you just really like. Like, what are you, what are your favorite cards that marry those two things together very well? Putting you, uh, putting you on the spot. I know. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it, it's not, it's not a problem at all. Um, it's just that, yeah, you know, I generally give the same answer when this kind of thing is asked me, uh, which is, you know, uh, the Kaisa. The oh, that's good. That I specifically uh, helped develop. Um, you know, that the general idea of them was, you know, was more creating a game within a game, moving them around like they were chess pieces, you know, working with Lucas to figure out, you know, what, how that concept should be translated mechanically, um, and then, you know, he worded his wording of the cards to get them so that they, you know, operate in a very specific fashion so that, you know, they're not super easily abusable, you kind of got to you know, commit to make them work. Uh, and, and I don't mean commit, it's like you have to play all of them, you have to play deep red. I mean, if you're going to toss them in your deck, 
you're either using them very moderately. I'm going to put in this one card, you know, times three, and I'm going to put it on the servers that I need it and, and need it on, and I'm not going to worry about moving it. I'm not going to worry about playing that game. Or, you know, you're spinning your clicks, you're moving it around, and you know, the corporation is just getting more and more annoyed about the fact that you know that's the vast last place that they want it to be at. So, you know, I think that is probably the the number one example. Although, looking at Blackguard and um, Blackguard in silhouette as a, as a pair, obviously, I think uh, really work well together. The idea of a stealth operative who is able to, you know, find out information before is a problem for her, forcing the corporation to, you know, deal with things on her terms rather than on their own. Okay. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. <laughs> um, one thing, I mean, this is just an aside, but one thing I'd heard is that someone who was running a pretty Kaisa heavy deck was thinking of having just a set of chess pieces, and that whenever they put a Kaisa in play, they would also like put like a little pawn or a little rook or whatever <laughs> on their opponent's card, in addition to the card itself. And I thought that was a that was a pretty good way to make those to make those specific cards like feel very tangible and real. And the fact that the game can afford doing that. I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. I think it's pretty awesome. I think I need to start hunting down uh, red chess pieces. Yeah, right. I think I think the guy said he was going to spray th spray paint them all red as well. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. I, I I think it's pretty good. <laughs> I like that because Kaisa was one of the mechanics I wasn't too keen on until I actually started playing it, and I'm finding that more and more with everything that pops up with Netrunner, I'm like, oh, side game, ugh, and I'm just I'm not into this at all, and then I start seeing it in play and I'm just falling in love with them so it's it's I think it's funny because I end up I end up picturing what the mechanic will be before I start um, actually interacting with it and when once I start interacting with it uh, I just start enjoying it so I find that pretty interesting it's happened two or three times during this game specifically yeah well I'm glad to hear I'm glad to hear that uh, it's coming through uh, and yeah I definitely we explore some really odd space for uh, for card games <laughs> not bad, Damon. Eh, you know, it was it was not my best day. Uh, <laughs> and then I sat down across uh, from this woman, and she comes up and said, and it's a shaker deck. And I look at her, and I kind of smile. And, you know, people are sort of, like, watching us play. It's, like, right in between. 
and she starts laying down cards, and people are like, why do you have that in your deck? That's not a good card, and that's not a good card. And, and then she pulls out and plays Exploratory Romp, and like there's at least two guys who actually laugh out loud at her. And I just, you know, my stomach drops out. I'm like, son of a gun, somebody's actually figured out how to use this card properly. And she starts rolling me with all of these cards that everybody else is like, this guy is crap. I'm like, you have like the three cards that nobody plays that completely unhinge my Jinteki deck. And I mean, I, I ended up managing right. to win, but just, just barely. Just destroyed every, every trick I had. She had a counterpoint. Every single one. It was the hardest game I think Certainly the hardest game I um, and one of the hardest games that I had played during the whole, whole tour. And again, it was mostly due to the fact that she had cards that nobody else played that happens to be perfect answers to how I play. You know, the cards that I choose and how I use them. So, you know, the idea that there are bad cards, they're, they're not many. There are not many. Most cards are just situational. And if you manufacture a number of those, One thing that I was curious is that were there any cards that you were developing? I mean, just I, I wonder how often does it happen that you feel like there's a card that has a really good, like thematic hook, but you can't get a nice mechanical synergy with it. And in those cases, do you just kind of like crowbar it in, or do you just kind of put that idea aside for a while and come back to it when there is a nice mechanical hook to put in with that thematic idea you wanted to explore? Uh, usually, it's the latter. Uh, I try not to crowbar anything. questions uh one do you have a particular bit of like a little hidden bit of uh flavor slash fluff from the world building that you think is really cool but probably most people who play the games don't necessarily realize um well yeah actually um so kate mccaffrey and noise uh our boyfriend and girlfriend and they have a daughter named chaos theory what whoa 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 hold the phone Wow! No, actually, I'm lying to you. That's not true. No. <laughs> <laughs> you totally, you totally had us going. Well done. I was, I was. Well like... done. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh. Well played. <laughs> yeah. I... I was, it was so deadpan too. I love it. <laughs> there is a reason why I like playing Jinteki. 
<laughs> right. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that there, you know, that there necessarily is anything that people haven't uh, haven't gotten per se. I mean, there are certain like little shout outs that we've included at various points. Um, you know, that are just nerdy references. Um, sure. Because you know, we we are a part of the nerdy culture ourselves. So. Was there was there one of those that you in particular was like your own little pet project, no pun intended, oh. to make sure that you got something like that into one specific card? Uh, there's the Archer reference uh, on Archer. Uh, ah, the, yes, yeah. okay. Nice. <laughs> the actual wording is uh, Lucas's, um, but you know, I, I had said, okay, so this is what, you know, this card needs a reference from this show. This is the one that I would suggest. <laughs> the show is so good. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and, you know, feel free to work it, you know, in however you want. And, you know, sure enough, we ended up with, you know, the Danger Zone quote on there. Mostly because every time I, every time I revealed it, I'm like, you've just entered the Danger Zone. <laughs> That's great. I'm sure that get, didn't get tiring at all for your opponents. <laughs> all right, uh, one more here, Damon. With uh, with with tournament season coming up, what's like a bit of high level play advice you'd offer to um, all the, all the players out there? Um, be less concerned about what is the quote unquote best deck that has won this tournament or that tournament. Play the deck that you know how to play the best, and that's generally going to be the one that you've worked on the longest. Whether or not you, you know, got originally inspired by somebody else and you've tweaked it, you know, through your uh, own play with it, uh, or if it's something that is completely unique to you, I mean, at least to the best of your knowledge, that's usually going to get you the most wins and the most secure play, uh, making the fewest mistakes, because, you know, it's what you know. Just because something is the new, you know, new hotness is not necessarily mean it's the, your best choice to go into a tournament with. That's I, a, that's a that, great. That is solid. <laughs> that is great advice. That is great advice. Awesome. Okay, well, we've taken up more than enough of your time as it is. We don't want to keep you any longer. Uh, thank you so very much for coming to join us. This was a fantastic conversation, and it. If, if it was somehow possible, made me even more excited about the game and where it's going to be going in the future. Excellent. excellent. Agreed. Uh, I look forward to listening to you guys in the future. Thanks a lot for having me. Awesome. Thank you very much. And uh, we will be back again in the future with another cast that won't probably have quite as fancy a guest, but I'm sure we'll be able to come up with something. <laughs> All right. um, so as always... If anyone has any thoughts, questions, feedback, whatever, you can just email us at Terminal7 at idlethumbs.net. Um, this week, thank you very much to our special guest recording engineer, Mr. Joey Goddard, who's also part of Power Up Audio, uh, same as Kevin, who helped us out with the last podcast. Um, if you want to check out any of their stuff, if you need audio support for games, um, basically, I think that's all you guys do. Sure, if you need anything audio-related, PowerUpAudio.com. And as always, thank you very much to Mr. Ed Harrison for letting us use his song Tin Soldiers from the Neo Tokyo soundtrack. Uh, you should totally grab that OST because it's fantastic. And you can grab it at edharrison.bandcamp.com. <laughs>